0: Okay, welcome to Screen Talk, the very first edition of IndieWire's podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Eric Cohn, Chief Film Critic and Senior Editor at IndieWire.com, and I'm joined by my colleague, IndieWire's editor-at-large and the proprietor of Thompson at Hollywood, Ann Thompson. How's it going, Ann?
1: Fine, Eric.
0: I feel like we talk all the time, so we're just like living podcast episodes wherever we go. Yeah,
1: and we just got back from Seattle, where we were up at the film festival there, and we hung out and did some... Panels together, so yeah, it does feel like, and and uh, you know, we're we're old buds.
0: It still kind of feels like we're we're living in the shadow of Can, which was, I guess, now over a month ago. At least it started over a month ago, but it but it feels like we're still kind of unpacking a lot of the stuff that went on there. And personally, I, you know, I've been going to Can for eight years, and it seemed to me like this was really one of the best editions in a long time, just in terms of quality, but. You've been going a little bit longer than that, so so I don't know if that squares with, with your assessment.
1: There's like an ebb and flow, a kind of arc that occurs at Cannes, where you go in with all these expectations, and uh, you know you're usually disappointed by you know the opening night movie, which of course we all you know we most of us were. The, the Nicole Kidman uh, Grace of Monica was you know you're, it was a very typical Cannes opening movie, um, you know with a good red carpet and stars, but not not too much critical acclaim. And then and then there's this period where everybody's sort of disappointed, you know, because the big movie hasn't arrived yet, and this year's festival was oddly backloaded in a, in a funny way. There was a lot of stuff at the at the end. But um, yeah, I thought it was a good festival, but nothing topped an early movie for me. Nothing topped Mr. Turner, Mike Lee's film. Nothing.:
0: Yeah, that was the first or one of the first uh, competition films. I think it was the second one to screen. Uh, and it, it was definitely difficult to uh, really conceive of anything being quite as rich. Although the film that won the Palme d'Or, Nuri Bilge uh Winter Sleep, you know, that was a three-hour and 15-minute Chekhov homage of sorts that uh, isn't the, exactly the sort of thing that the, you, you could see doing a lot of money commercially, and yet it was a big deal at Cannes. And so to me, that was a real triumph of Cannes, less that... You know, a filmmaker like Mike Lee can do this really sophisticated biopic, you know, Timothy Spall in the terrific uh, lead role as J.M.W. Turner, and and more that, you know, a filmmaker who is in some ways kind of created by Khan, or at least his his legacy uh, was enriched by Khan's attention to his career over the years, could really walk away with the top prize. You know, it's a, it, that that's what that festival is is, is important for. Well, you know? it's
1: about the auteurs. I mean, the competition, especially, it's it's a it's a thing that can does it confers on certain filmmakers, and it takes its time coming around to that. It, it's not as quick off the uh, out of the starting gate as I would like. Sometimes, you know, they wait, you know, before they decide that somebody's deserving. Although this year they actually did put. Bennett Miller's fox catcher, well deservedly, into the competition, and uh, gave him that that slot. You know, a, a, a couple of years ago, they, they gave Wes Anderson his first auteur uh, position. You know, uh, with with um, Moonrise Kingdom. You know, Woody Allen is, is has been conferred, and you know, he's become an auteur over you know many years now. And then once you get into the club it's very difficult, Yeah, you know, they keep bringing people, like, I still don't understand why they included Adam McGoyan's The Captives in this lineup. It was just such a terrible, awful movie.
0: Well, exactly. I mean, there is this kind of sense of an insidery club, but you have to have something to offer in order to get into that club in the first place, you know? So as much as I find that festival to be really elitist, you know, they have the pick of the litter, and they do pick pretty carefully... In certain ways, you know, at least they're trying to represent, I think, a certain kind of idea of what good movies are. And yet, you know, there's all this behind the scenes type of politicking going on that never overwhelm the big picture. You know, it's like Grace of Monaco was a disaster in some ways. I mean, I didn't think it was nearly as atrocious. I enjoyed it. Me. It
1: was a commercial movie. It really yeah. wasn't. It was a can movie only in the sense that you wanted Nicole Kidman walking up that red carpet.
0: But the, the point I'm getting at here with a movie like that is that the way that it was met at Con would suggest that this movie was a total disaster and yet within two or three days people were back to talking about this festival being, you know, a celebration of great art. You know, it's it's like no matter how many missteps you find in the lineup, the Adam and Gullion film being another one, there's always some kind of a rebound. It's a power that no other film festival has and no other real film entity has in this world. And so that's why I think it's like such an amazing place to be. It's like no matter what, you're you're continually forced to think about these movies in terms of art, even though there's this other stuff going on that's, that's not necessarily about that. Yeah,
1: that's, that's fair enough, I but, agree
0: with that. But, the
1: know, other The other disappointment for me was the Cronenberg, maps to the stars which i enjoyed fitfully but it felt uh it it felt dated you know it didn't it didn't feel like it didn't feel like Cronenberg on his game somehow even though and i was totally shocked that julianne moore won best actress especially over uh, uh, Marion Cotillard who was so great in the Dardenne's film uh, Two Days and One Night.
0: No matter what you feel about Maps to the Stars, I found it to be a really enjoyable, wicked satire even yeah, if yeah. was, you know, I mean it, look, it's, it's adapted from this Bruce, Bruce Wagner screenplay you know, Bruce R- Wagner writes these very broad kind of Snapshots of, of, of Hollywood society, and, and so you know, I think it reflects that. So, in some ways, it's a very well honed adaptation. But, you know, going beyond that, the scene that everybody's talking about with Julianne Moore and Max of the Stars is when she's on the toilet. She's that's not, not gonna happen, but that's what happened. What happens at that festival is that, that by the end, everyone's trying to derive. Oh yeah, so
1: let's talk in those terms if we will. You're going to be shocked and surprised, except that I've already told you this in another context, by my pick for the definite Oscar win at Cannes, which is How to Train Your Dragon 2 is going to win, you know, the Best Animated Feature. That's the only thing, seriously, that is the one thing that came out of that.
0: You know, if you said a Best Picture nomination or something, I would have been shocked. It's not that shocking when you think about it, I mean, obviously, the way that that franchise has been positioned, if they're gonna make it, it better be good. DreamWorks hasn't had a movie that's been received on, on quite that same level since, I think, the first Had to Train Your Dragon. Which so.
1: lost, unfortunately, to Toy Story 3, so, you know, what were they gonna do, right? Right. So they may, you know, they may, I just don't see any movie coming out. And I mean, this is a big deal to win, to win West Animated Feature. Um, could it be nominated for Best Picture? I doubt it, partly because it is a sequel. It's so hard. Everybody gets relegated to the animated universe, unfortunately.
0: It's interesting to me that you single that one out as a big deal because, you know, the animation category rarely seems to dominate conversations about award season at all, you know, and if you look back on, on the line. It's an important
1: category. It doesn't dominate, but it's, it's an important, you know, it's an important win. And, and if you think in, industry terms, you know, it's important for Disney or Pixar, which won't uh, have any 2014 films this well, year. Well sure, so
0: I, don't get me wrong, mean, it, matters for, it matters for a certain part of the industry. What I'm saying is, why is it that we're not walking away from this festival talking about, you know, the big awards contenders in the categories where people expect them? You know, Foxcatcher well, is Fox okay. the one. Yeah.
1: So Fox That would Catcher, be the normal one. Uh, that's gonna do well, and Mr. Turner will do will do well, and, and, and if Timothy Spall won Best uh, actor it can, I think we can assume he will be uh, given a nomination, um, and so will Mike Lee. Mike Lee does very well with the Oscars, always does.
0: Well, it goes back to, to uh, when Bingham Ray in October and fil- films could get uh, Secret of in the Night, right? That that was a big deal. Right now, maybe less so, although I have to say I'm, I'm skeptical. A, a film as as nuanced and, and, and textured as Mr. Turner would actually be an award season contender. When you look at the way that Bigger movies that are more, let's say, uniformly accessible, uh, tend to kind of dominate. I mean, this is not this is a very quiet film that isn't very traditional in terms of its plot. Yes, but it's
1: gorgeously wrought. And what happens is, Mike Lee tends to be nominated as a writer and, which is interesting, given the way he makes his films, as a writer and as a director. Um, I think the actors will completely support uh, Timothy Spall, and the film is gorgeously wrought, and it is stunning visually, so you have cinematography, uh, Dick Pope, you have uh, production design, you have costumes, it's all period, the Academy eats that stuff up, believe me, they love it.
0: Yeah, but I mean, the, the costume winner last year was Gatsby
1: they are not enough period films made anymore. It's also Sony Pictures' classic, so they're yeah. gonna do.
0: I mean, they Sony know classic. their they
1: know their constituents, and they'll do what they gotta do. You know, it'll go through the fall the fall festival circuit. You know, is this gonna be a big box office movie? No, 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 no. no of course not. But
0: although I'm sure Sony would love that. I mean, look, they had seven movies or some nine movies, some crazy number like that at Con this year. You know, they
1: started with five. They
0: started with five, and so they, they, bought built, a bunch. they
1: bought
0: a bunch. <laughs> that's right. So, so gradually, they controlled the universe. Um, they, but, because
1: there's nobody else in in their universe anymore. I mean, I, IFC was kind of as what I was gonna say before. Um, if you, you know, there's several different angles to approach. Can so on the one hand. Um, you 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 could be thrilled as a critic and the other critics were were very pleased with with the stuff they got to see but as you say um winter sleep is unlikely to make much of a dent with the general public in the US and i think you know the on the sales side on the industry side on the business side on the market side uh it was considered a very disappointing festival so the, the like the big acquisition from the you know american buyers was David Robert Mitchell's It Follows. Right, which which is is actually a really cool movie. Yeah, Yeah,
0: it's a genre film. It's a very peculiar genre film, sort of a partly a coming-of-age story, partly a romance, and and partly a a horror film. But About uh,
1: about spreading uh, a a disease, you know, a hideous uh, ailment uh, via sex. Right. It's
0: going to do gangbusters on VOD. We know that much.
1: So it's Radius that picked it up, you know. Uh, That was the big hot to pick up, you
0: know. Although I will say this, Sony Classics has money to spend on all kinds of different movies and seeing the slate that they have, I'm less excited about them throwing money behind an Oscar campaign for Mr. Turner than I am for something like Wild Tales, which is this Argentinian satire that didn't win anything, but was definitely sort of the crowd pleaser of competition. To me, it's it, it was one of the most exciting experiences I've had at, at Cannes to see this film because it was just so alive with comedy and attitude as it sort of satirized all these different kinds of characters in Argentinian society. And it's, it's just really wild and dark and, and, and fun. And I just feel like that's a movie that nobody's really going to be talking about. Because the company that puts it out is going to put their resources elsewhere.
1: No, 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 no. They do they do well by everything. I mean, that's going to be an example of a movie that they're kind of banking on, like when they picked up No a few years ago, um, that they're going to hope will be the submission for the Oscar. So that's what will give it an instant boost. Although, you know, I loved The Lunchbox, which they picked up. Um, it did really well at the box office. Huge. It's out there now, doing really well. It's it's a, a surprise hit even without the Oscar uh, support. So did you see Bigger. Lost
0: River? Well, so so let's talk about Lost River. So so Ryan Gosling directs this movie. It looks great. It's shot by Benoit Debbie, who last was the cinematographer for Spring Breakers. I mean it it's it's a it's a really bizarre kind of coming of age type of story about a kid who s- discovers a, a river that buries an old town and. His mother, who works a, a CD job, and all these different kinds of things converge into something. It's it's a weird movie. It's it, but the, the thing it was is
1: quite compelling, and you, I found it very visually it. Uh, sophisticated and, and atmospheric, and and you know the, 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 a lot of these movies can be so. Um, off-putting and and dense and and not go anywhere and meander. And this one had a a certain unity to it that I found uh, attractive,
0: actually. Well, my issue with Lost River is that there's a lot that's accomplished about it, and I've seen it many times before. And that's not necessarily a knock against the movie per se, but in this case, it felt like that because it was just so present in every moment. I just felt like you were constantly being reminded that this was a movie trying to emulate David Lynch, trying to emulate Harmony Korine, all, the, all these different filmmakers whose work I admire to the point where it's like, look, if you wanted to make that movie a sort of a fan tribute, that's fine, but it's at Con Again, this is a festival that invites critical scrutiny. You know, it brings a different sort of context, and I think that's what happened with a lot of the critics who reacted negatively to that movie. But, you know, the, the other thing is obviously Ryan Gosling brings some baggage. He's an easy target. And that's something that happens. I'd like to, to argue
1: that if someone else that we didn't know had directed it, it would have been a big discovery. <laughs> that, I mean, that's I mean, a it.
0: question. That's a question. We'll never know the answer to that. But you can keep dangling that hypothetical. And and when and if the movie gets out there, supposedly Warner Brothers is trying to sell it to somebody else. Now, you know, we'll we'll be able to to revisit that. Another movie at, at Com that got a really interesting device of reacting that's opening this week also has that kind of star power in play in a different sort of way, which is. David Michaud's The Rover, which is Robert Pattinson and Guy Pearce uh, in this kind of post-apocalyptic, very violent On the road
1: in the Outback.
0: Exactly, exactly. You know, with a little bit of the proposition. I liked it, actually.
1: I thought, and I actually was surprised, by the way, Pattinson was very good in uh, Maps Maps to the Stars, and I thought he was good in Cronenberg's. Uh, last uh, entry as well, Cosmopolis, and he's he's rather watchable in The Rover. There, there, he keeps you interested. He's he's uh, he's surprising and unpredictable. And even though the character is very reminiscent of some uh, of, of of mice and men, very Steinbeck, um, I I liked him.
0: Well, my my uh, review for The Rover basically said that I've seen this kind of movie done better. But I do think that Pattinson is better than he's been. I caught a lot of flack in the comments for using the term uh, wooden mannerisms to describe some of his other earlier performances. Uh, he lot- has
1: his fans, as you know.
0: Yeah, and you know, some of, some of their complaints come from real places. He's an actor who has some element of gravitas he hasn't fully explored yet. And I think the Twilight series obviously limited, by, limited him by virtue of the material but you know, with with the rover, it's it's interesting. I mean, I think it's a very basic movie. I've I've seen these kinds of movies before. As you say, on the road in the outback is is pretty much a a good summation of the vein that Michaud is working in here. I thought Animal Kingdom, his his last feature, was much stronger in terms of the kind of story it was it was trying to tell, much more layered and sophisticated. You know, but but uh, I will give Pattinson credit here for for doing something just. Totally bizarre and, and against his star power in in many ways. I mean, he and yet
1: very you know he felt legitimate. He felt he felt like a real character. It wasn't like it was a tar, a star a star turn. And Guy Pierce carries it. He's he's absolutely riveting. And it's a mysterious um, role in the sense that you don't really know who he is or where he's come from. You know, and and he and Michaud did an interesting kind of dystopian idea here, which is not. Post-apocalyptic, but rather where we're going to be in 15 years if we keep let letting everything happen the way it's unfolding now. He does, he actually has a certain political subtext uh, to the whole to the whole thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, he says that in interviews. I felt like Spike Jones, her did that, but this movie only did it in in theory. I mean, it, to me, it's like. He came out with the outline. He didn't really color it in too well, you know. And, and I, I
1: like the I, elemental minimalist idea. I, I do. I, I think it. I think it actually works quite quite well, and it's gorgeous in its own way. I mean, that's part. I mean, yes, it falls into the, to the, you know. The, the the Australian you know dystopian tradition, but but I, I thought he brought a, a new uh, a new twist to it.
0: So we've we've covered the Rover and the Rover's coming out on Friday, but it's a pretty crowded weekend. I mean, on the mainstream scale, you, you talked about How to Train Your Dragon two. There's twenty two Jump Street, which is for most people the big movie opening. I saw
1: it and I enjoyed it to a point. I loved the first one. I laughed my head off at the first one, and I thought the mismatched. Uh, sort of Mutt and Jeff, uh, <laughs> Channing, Channing Tatum and and Jonah Hill was was hilarious. And what they do in this one is they deepen it into this whole deconstruction of a bromance, mm-hmm. and it's hilarious because they're partners, but they're undercover at a college, and and Tatum is more successful socially, and and you know Hill is of course what he is, but he's actually you know scoring with women. You know it's it's hilarious actually, but. At the same time, it's a mess. <laughs> it's, it's a strange mess.
0: I've noticed that it, there, there's something smug about um, you know certain kinds of movies being made now where as long as you confess to the kind of fundamental commercial goal, it's okay to do that. And so all That's these true. things about, you know, it's like as long as we make fun of sequels, People will forgive us for these sequels, you know, like if, if, if the new Spider-Man had been more self-aware, maybe audiences would have would have flocked to it more. This movie
1: is all about being self-aware. It is very meta. And there's a whole thing at the end where they're give, giving you the poster treatment for all the sequels coming up. Uh, which is pretty
0: funny. Well, I'm gonna go see it this weekend with with the rest of of the world. It'll It'll be a huge hit, no
1: question about it. Nobody's gonna complain about it.
0: But I have to tell you, I mean, it's a really good week for new releases, especially in limited release. I mean, every week is like this. You know, you have the stuff at the top of the barrel and then there's everything underneath, and there are two movies that I would single out as my absolute favorites that are probably gonna wind up in some fashion on my year-end summary of, of the best movies of the year, One is Coffee in Berlin, which used to be called Oh Boy. It's a a black and white Francis Ha-like story about this 20-something guy roaming around Berlin and trying to put his life together. Uh, It won all these German Academy Awards last year, and it's finally getting a a small release via Music Box. The other is Manuscripts Don't Burn, which is the other end of the genre spectrum. It's this really bleak thriller by the Iranian filmmaker Mohammed Rasoloff who violated a twenty-year ban uh, against filmmaking to make this really tense story about the Iranian government trying to censor a bunch of journalists from reporting on an assassination attempt? Uh, these are extraordinary accomplishments, I think, because they're working within traditional genres but doing things differently. And and they're just not—they don't have the same kind of marketing budgets behind them. Nobody's really going to talk about them in the same big ways. But to me, you know, this stuff matters just as much. So you know. If, if somebody goes to see 22 Jump Street and they want something a little bit different, I would say, you know, coffee in Berlin will make you laugh, too. Manuscripts don't burn, maybe not, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's good for you.
1: I would send people to catch up with Obvious Child if they haven't done so already, which opened up uh, last weekend, which I love. Um, and Jenny Slate is a real... Uh, discovery. It is a very
0: funny movie and I think it's it's a great moment for Jenny Slate to kind of enter a new stage of her career. So it's, it's nice to see that it's, it's doing well. As much as we can get locked into these conversations about new releases, there's already all kinds of fresh stuff coming out uh, through the festival circuit, uh, now through the Los Angeles Film Festival which started last night. So you're out there. You, I assume, have seen the opening night film Snowpiercer, uh, give us your thoughts on, you know... Well,
1: I think I sat too close to the screen... You, know, you felt like the train
0: was going to hit you?
1: Oh, my God. I, I, I mean, he's an intense filmmaker, you know, Bong Junho, ho and, and I, I loved uh, the filmmaker. I love the design of this train, which is like plowing through. there. There, It's a great, great concept, yeah, you know, based on a graphic novel. The idea that this, you know, before we tried to fight cl- climate change by sending something into the atmosphere that sent the world into a deep freeze.
0: <laughs> I mean, this if God you're going one... to see one, create
1: a, a a loop around the world by train. I that the part about how it goes under the oceans isn't exactly explained, but uh, anyway, he goes all the way around the world, and ev- every year they know exactly when they cross this incredibly vertiginous mountain bridge that they've gone a year. You know, and it goes for 17 years but the part I love the movie that's about the people at the back of the train you know fighting their way to the front of the train and Chris Evans is the leader and and there's good turns by by um, Ed Harris as the guy who who created the train who's running the whole thing and the, and of course uh, Tilda Swinton in one of her over-the-top character parts She's but totally it crazy. is it is incredibly violent you know you're just constant it's sitting right up front you know and I can handle that I'm fine you know I'm a good tough girl but it was assaultive it felt like i was being pummeled well, look it's
0: a movie that by definition is constantly in motion although i will say it's it, as much of, of, of a mess as it is in parts i mean it's it's a glorious mess and i agree with you that know, it, it, uh, you know just to go back to an earlier conversation if you see one post-apocalyptic movie this summer i'd see this over the rover i mean it's like every crazy action movie mashed into one from. Well, the rover the isn't
1: an action movie, and this one totally is. The rover is really more of a character study.
0: But I mean, a, a, as an action movie, okay, this is this is a movie that 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 is completely contained in, in one set. That's largely, you know, there's a lot of CGI going on and so forth. But it's it's very strange as you know something that kind of looks and feels like a blockbuster, and yet. It seems like it's going to do really well. I mean, I heard through the Grapevine that Entertainment Weekly wants to put it on their cover. Um, they're doing all kinds of U.S. press involving actual train rides to go watch the movie. Um, you know, It's going to really get out there in a way. Certainly that Bong Joon-ho's films have never really been uh, appreciated before in the United States. And, and I found also, it you know,
1: really interesting that they... That I hope it does. I hope, you're all, I hope all of that is true, but it's interesting that the Big Weinstein Co., which... You know, obviously there's dimension as one side of the Weinstein Co., but this didn't go to the big Weinstein Co. Or they picked it up originally. Then there was this big, you know, wrangle between, you know, typical wrangle between Harvey Scissorhands and the filmmaker who complained publicly all you know, around the world that he didn't want to, you know, have to, to edit his movie into something else. And finally, uh, it's being released by Radius. The, the sidearm. The okay.
0: But, I mean, there, there is a context that's necessary here to explain how that happened, which is Tom Quinn, who's one of the co-presidents of Radius, has an existing relationship with Bong Joon-ho because he released at Magnolia Pictures Bong's earlier films. so It's a good save. It's, it's a, a, a very really good, good save. And, you know, it's not surprising to me, having seen it, that Harvey wanted to chop it up a bit just because it it is two and a half hours long, it is all over the place, but I don't see how cutting 20 minutes out would make for a better movie when this thing is already kind of just so messy by design. So it does make sense that they would kind of hand it down to somebody who's more interested in a weirder, quirkier movie, and yet still sort of has the resources to blow it up in a bigger way. I mean, I guess it's maybe wishful thinking to some degree, you know, hoping that it beats Transformers 4, which it's opening up against. But it does seem like it's... not going to
1: happen.
0: It's not going to happen, but (laughs) we, we can keep hoping that it at least, you know, stays somewhere in the vicinity of that conversation. It doesn't need to beat Transformers 4 for a lot of people who like movies on a certain scale to realize that that's the better alternative. And that would be a win. But, you know, again, knowing how the industry works, uh, there's just no way to compete. I want to conclude this conversation by pivoting off of some of this uh, insidery dialogue and bring up uh, your old pal Nikki Fink. Old
1: pal, new, huh? We were at one time uh, friendly colleagues. Well, and the yeah, definition of friend, it, it, together. Yeah. my understanding
0: is, friend. is, is friendship in, in Hollywood is, is, is always its own it, kind of it, weird it, quirky it's thing. Cork. Yes. Um, so, so look, Nikki's new site launched today. She's been <laughs> off the grid for a little while, uh, I assume because of non-compete clauses with uh, her former employer. Uh, she suddenly... Jay s- Pensky, Jay Penske. Um, and, and, you know, now she's back. She she's got a, a new screed up today about how she wants to be the voice of all these suffering uh you know bottom feeders in Hollywood or or something to that effect. Uh do you think that anybody cares anymore?
1: Well, Nikki has a lot going for her in the sense that she has a voice, you know? She really does. And I think that voice is missing from Deadline, and I think deadline you know as successful as it is um was better when when she was was there it It was more unpleasant for everyone <laughs> to work with her or or deal with her or or function with her but um and Hollywood has taken a deep breath of and a sigh of relief, I think in many ways with her not being in the frame um. But um, I give her a lot of credit for launching Deadline, I give her a lot of credit for what she did well. I've often criticized her, too, Um, I see no reason why anyone needs to make everybody's life miserable bully them. Uh, you know, uh, fight with them, uh, uh, threaten them uh, with lawsuits. You know, I've been threatened <laughs> by her. I've been maltreated by her, like everyone else. It's
0: almost um, like a badge of honor if you, if you hear well, from Nikki. Well, to, ha-
1: to have her yelling at you on the phone is not a pleasant uh, experience. But um, um, I, we're of an age, me and Nikki, and I know what it's like to run a blog every day. And I, um, uh don't get into the fray with with uh the plow the powers that be quite the way that that she does but i know how exhausting it is so she's taken a break and i'm just curious to see if she is uh, renewed and refreshed my take on uh what happened after penske bought her was that she really was a was better off on her own as an independent not having to work with other people so i want to see her uh ride this um and and see where it goes uh it'll be hard i don't know how financially remunerative it will be i don't know she never had oscar ads before she you know in other words she had a kind of toxic atmosphere around her on her blog when it was at the LA weekly and after after penske you know bought her and brought in pete hammond and brought in all these other players you know mike fleming and everything they, then then they had, uh, she had buffers and she had, there were other, there's a lot of other copy around her. They could sell the ads, they could do all of that, they could make a, a living out of it, because all of these sites survive on, on awards advertising. So I don't know, you know, how big it will be, how much traffic she'll have, how many people will read her, uh, whether she'll make a living at it, whether she'll post a lot every single day, which is what you sort of have to do to build up a site. She did it once before. I don't know if she can do it again.
0: As much as I've never really felt that enthusiastic about Nikki's work, I did sign up for her email alert. So, you know, look, in a week, we'll have a better idea of what, she, what she's planning, and, and then we'll, we can uh, reconvene and maybe uh, dig into that a little bit then. But for now, all we can do is, is uh, guess. With that in mind, I guess we'll sign off for now. But thank you, Anne. This has been enlightening
1: always fun to tangle with you, Eric. Alrighty. <laughs>